lights and blue skies are on their way. Yeah, they're on their way. Hi, everyone. My name is Corey Raven. And you're listening to Crosstalk. Our next edition in our podcast focused on helping people to get support to enhance the likelihood that they'll remain in recovery, stay sober, and have a happy life. That's what we're trying to do is help everyone connect with one another because connection is so important. The first thing I want to start with is trying to do things that create a situation where we feel good on a moment-to-moment basis. And one of the things we all kind of do, the society that we live in, everything we see when we walk down the street, when we're in a subway or on a bus or driving down the highway, we see signs about how everybody should be, how things look, how pretty everybody should be and perfect everybody should be. As we all know, none of us are perfect and trying to be perfect is not really something that works very well. I, for one, can tell you that I'm not perfect. I had a very, very difficult time when I was younger and then again later on getting and staying sober. Part of the reason why I'm here is because it helps me stay sober. One of the things I want to talk about today is how we compare ourselves with other people. When we compare ourselves with somebody else, whether it's because of the car they drive, who they're with, or the job they have, what happens is we end up thinking either that we're better than those people, which kind of makes us not so nice. We think we're not as good as those people and we feel terrible about ourselves. Comparing ourselves with other people is really a losing proposition either way. The best way to compare is to compare ourselves with ourselves. And I'll speak from my own personal experience. For instance, the day I walked into an alcohol and drug treatment center, I didn't feel very good about myself. When I left about 30 days later, I felt very different. I was comparing how I felt inside with how I felt inside day one and day 30. I felt like I was responsible. I had some balance in my life. When we compare ourselves with other people, we're really comparing our insides with somebody else's outsides. We never know what somebody else feels or what's going on with them. And so any comparison with other people doesn't work. So I hope the idea of comparing yourself with yourself is something that you'll do to give yourself an idea as to whether or not you're moving in the right direction or maybe moving in a direction that could alter its course and do better. I'm very excited to introduce a person who has long-term sobriety, who's a wonderful, wonderful human being, one of my favorite people, who's walking the face of the earth. And her name is Betsy Ori. I was adopted at birth. I was in an orphanage for the first couple of months of my life. We moved a lot when I was growing up, and I always felt a little bit different. It was unsettling at best. Physical abuse from a stepfather, a very volatile relationship with my mother. I've always been a very sensitive person, and that's a wonderful thing sometimes, and that's an awful thing sometimes. Couple that with adolescent hormones, add some substances, and it's, it's a storm. It's a perfect storm. You know, look, I'll just say this. There's alcoholism and dysfunction. You shake a tree and in my family and like there's just things falling out of it. Moving, moving was geographic moving, house moving. I was in the same school for kindergarten and first grade and seventh and eighth grade. We went to Florida when I was almost 12. You know, I, I got in trouble along the way. I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. Not enough time to, to create connection have roots planted. No, and I, I miss that to this day. And as I get older, it becomes more of a sensitive spot for me because I see people who have all of that history and I couldn't understand 
when I was younger how much that meant. Everybody always thought, oh, Betsy has so many friends and she's so popular. I mostly kept people at arm's length. I don't think I was taught real relationship skills. I didn't know how to let people in in a way that I've learned how to do over time. I don't believe that I really ever attached to anyone, probably until I had kids. Today I really appreciate the importance of long-term relationships and connections. You mentioned add a little substances. Want to talk a little bit about when that started and what it felt like? Well, I'll go back. I can remember being in the basement of my grandparents' house and my grandfather had a bar down there. I also remember old duck. They would have that downstairs at the holidays and, you know, I would sip a little bit. I can remember moving to Florida. There was a realtor who had a younger brother. I remember his name. I won't you know, whatever, but um, I think the realtor said to my mother, like, he goes to the school they should meet, and he came over with an empty Hellman's mayonnaise jar filled with stolen whiskey. I don't even know what it was. And that was my first drink. It's very glamorous. Hellman's mayonnaise jar. Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise jar. Sounds really appealing. Gross. Gross. Disgusting. Yeah. That was in a town in Florida where things took a hard left turn. It was a tough town to live in. I did raid the prescription drugs that my mother had when I was 12. I tried a whole host of things, especially those few years in Florida. And then from there, Connecticut to Biff and Buffy land for a year to live with some extended family members because I just couldn't get along with my mother. I continued to drink. I think there was still a little bit of cannabis use. I was mostly just trying to escape myself. I just couldn't stand to be with myself. I really couldn't. I kind of reverted back to the student that I once was when I was a little kid. School saved me. I loved going to school. The structure, the kindness, and I wanted approval more than anything else, so that makes a good student. I was there for the school year, went back down to Florida to live with my best friend's family, and finished out my senior year there. Then moved out, got an apartment, and started to work. I was waiting for Harvard to come knocking on my door and offer me a scholarship or tell me I was accepted. No, they never showed up. Son of a gun. <laughs> I mean, I had that, like, okay, everybody always told me I was smart. I, you know, why isn't this happening? Did I know that you had to fill out financial aid and, like, send it out? No. I had no direction. I had no guidance. I didn't know what I was doing. I started to work more, and school became less important. And then I interviewed for a job with a cosmetic company. It was like a finishing school for me. I mean, you could have just put my name on that business card, and I can't even tell you what they did for my self-esteem. And I would have done anything, anything working for them. The manager came up to me one night and said, look, there's a book called Adult Children of Alcoholics. You definitely need to read that book. I knew he saw something in me, and I found myself maybe a year and a half later purchasing that book and reading it and it's like I couldn't get the words into my mind quickly enough. I couldn't believe how strongly I identified with what I was reading. What did you read that you connected with? Um, all of it. The people pleasing certainly, the loneliness, the, the low self-esteem, the lack of boundaries, not trusting was a big one for me. Kind of goes back to the beginning of what you were talking about which is not being taught how to have relationships with people. And to find that there was a world where people talked about that, that changed my life. That was the beginning of a lot of changes for me. So you read the book, you connect with it, you start going to some kind of thing that, that helped you or? 
Of course not. <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I wasn't quite ready to address anything, but I always felt like there was something wrong with me. I felt like I was different from other girls. I would look at other girls. I will say I got through life by comparing. I always looked at what other people did and people that seemed to have it together and came from good families. I watched them because that's how I learned. In some ways it served me really well and it continues to now not serve me well. We live in a culture of comparison now and it's just to your point, not a great thing. When somebody doesn't teach you exactly what it is to do, the only thing you have to do is to watch everybody else. Look, I got lessons. I think in looking outside of the family, I saw that there was another way. I used to love going to my grandparents' house. There was a family meal, slides, and they traveled quite a bit. Having those seeds planted, I knew that that was what I wanted for myself. I also know in my recovery, I have managed to find my birth family, and I know my genetic roots in that way, being curious. And, and having some of that inside of me really helped me. So there's a point in time where you get your shit together. So there's a point in time where you get your shit together. Well, <laughs> Comparatively speaking, <laughs> I did go eventually to find a community of people with adverse childhood experiences and began to realize and face what I didn't really want to face was that the most toxic relationship I had was the one I had with myself, particularly substances. I just knew that I didn't drink normally and that needed to change. Growing up, I always felt like nobody was telling me the truth. There were lies. One of my favorite poems in high school was Ode on a Grecian Urn, Beauty is Truth and Truth is Beauty. Honesty was always really important. And I found a community of people where when I heard them talk about themselves, I immediately and instinctively knew that they were telling the truth. I couldn't stop listening. People wanted to hear my story. They wanted to hear about me. Just being able to do that to be loved and accepted and embraced that was incredibly healing for me. It was the beginning of me learning how to truly connect with people. I had other things that I really needed to address, behavioral things and the life I'd lived prior to, to putting down a drink. I didn't want to leave that group of people, that I would do whatever I needed to do to stay with them and that was easy for me. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave. I still don't want to leave. And it took me a long time to believe that there were no strings attached, that people just didn't have an agenda. What does somebody have to look forward to going forward from the point of time that you put down a drink, put down a drug? What good things came from that? The best thing is not a thing that came from that. The best, this is what gets teary. You have three children. They are the biggest blessing in my whole entire life, that's for sure. But I didn't do that right away. <laughs> so I went back to school. I knew if I didn't go back, I wouldn't go back. I was waitressing and I was going to school at a community college. I had to take a speech class and I chose to write my speech on why America loves recovering alcoholics because I think I needed to know that it was okay to be one. There's a plaque in my office and it says every family has baggage, you just need to know how to unpack it. Uncovered, discovered, discard. And I continue to do that. I mean, so many joys, I've met some of the best people. I've had the hardest laughs I've ever had in my life. I mean, I've danced more on tables in the past 
ten years. And wait a while, wait a while, wait a while. You mean you can have fun without drinking and drugging? Yes. So I can be myself. That's who we're meant to be, you know? We're supposed to be childlike, and I'm not the biggest fan of adulting, but I have to do that too. <laughs> I've kind of discovered that the best two things to keep us in the moment, one is what you just said, dancing. Oh, dancing's fun. Because when you're dancing, you're there. You're not thinking of what happened last week or what might happen next year. And this is my favorite thing to do, is laughing feels almost drug-like to me. I enjoy it so much, which is why I'm so funny. And then, you know, I can't help it, but... And modest. Modest, fun, very good point. So modest. Well said, yeah. as usual, well said. <laughs> you know, there's a quote, it's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she said, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known struggling, loss, defeat, and have climbed their way out from the bottom. I think we're all in recovery from something. I love it when people say they have no baggage and they're like in their midlife. Well, where have you been? The rest of us are carrying a few things around. You know, when people really let you in, it is the most humbling thing for someone to just fully trust like that. Being trusted with someone when they're in that space and then watching people being able to share that bond that comes from the lowest maybe point in their life, it's incredible. There are words for that. Oh, I've hurt people by not trusting them when they have been trustworthy. That can be frustrating. If you don't feel what cut you, you will bleed all over everyone. It bothers me that I would hurt anybody. Certainly, I hurt myself. And I think whenever we hurt people that we love, we do hurt ourselves. The craziest thing I ever did was doing LSD in college, getting into a car and driving from Saratoga State Park to Albany. And I remember driving and I was sure that the car was stationary and the road was moving. How I possibly got where I was going in that state of mind, I have no idea. And I had a, a car filled with my friends who were probably all laughing and drinking and smoking mm. pot and doing crazy stuff. I was just thinking about filling up my gas tank and definitely being intoxicated. Shouldn't have been driving anyway. I smoked cigarettes at the time. Oh my goodness. And I flicked the cigarette at the gas station. Like to put it out or something. But I remember the attendant sort of looking at me and I'm thinking, what? And then I thought, Oh! <laughs> yes. Just, you know the movie Zoolander at the end where they're like, I did a lot of things that I call it invasion of the body snatchers because once a substance comes in, you're gone. It's not me anymore. Something else is making all my decisions for me. The shame part of it, understanding that it's not you, it's the addiction, it's the substance. Not every time I use or drink does something bad happen, but every time something really bad happens, it's because I've been using or drinking. I got there in a variety of ways, I would say. Moving all the time, fitting in was really important. If you do something and you like the effects, you do it again and again and again. My brain just loved it. People ask me all the time, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And my answer to them is, how the hell would I know? I mean, alcoholism, drug addiction is self-diagnosed. And the way to figure it out and the way to change is to have the ability to be honest with yourself. Thank you.
the ability to drink again? <laughs> good answer. It's a really good answer. I could answer the question, but that's good. You know, let's keep that in. <laughs> <sighs> well, don't we all? I've had issues with food. That's much better. Running for me for a while was like a thing. I found it very meditative. A wise man said to me, if you need to try to control something, it implies that it's already out of control. If I'm getting that ick feeling, I need to pay attention to that. There's a million ways to run away from oneself. Sometimes you just kind of have to check out. A healthier way of doing that is like a lot of Ted Lasso. For me, my first sober coach used to say, Corey, I have a disease of compulsivity. One of the things I heard somebody say that I liked is that I have a disease of more. More. Which is that anything I like, I like to do more. And I have to be careful of that. I have to try to check in with myself, look at what balance I have. I mean, one of the things I miss most is when I first went into treatment, I started smoking, which was a genius move. But I just replaced one for another, and that stopped after a while. Eating, gambling, there's pretty much nothing that one could do addictively that I haven't had a foray into. Fortunately, today, I'm able to look at everything that I'm doing and keep pretty much everything in check, other than laughing. Laughing, I cannot control. And that's something that I'm really not working on at all. Yeah. Well, there's a million ways to escape, right? There really are. To your point, it's just about checking myself and having relationships with people that I'm friendly enough and I trust enough that they'll check me. Like, you know what? I'm concerned. I want that friend. I do not need someone to tell me how great I am. No. I mean, maybe a little bit. <laughs> well, you keep me around for that. Okay, fine. That's good. <laughs>
I'm so grateful for your yeah, thank being, you. for being our guest and sharing with the people listening your story. And for my part, exactly what I was hoping you did today. I think the more we talk about this, the better off we are. There's no one that doesn't relate to this in some way. Betsy, thank you for being here and taking time out of your day to spend with our viewers and with me to talk about recovery, sobriety, and your own path. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you. I want to talk to you a little bit about staying sober, but more importantly, being happy and staying sober. There's a song by Jason Mraz called Living in the Moment. I recommend it to everybody. Being happy and being sober is a wonderful thing. I can tell you that because that's where I am today. I want to talk to you about the difference between Chronos time and Kairos time. Friends of mine who are not in recovery, very smart, very thoughtful people, sent me a Christmas card and I saved it. Chronos time is linear time, time that can be measured in seconds, minutes, hours, and years. It presides over dates, clocks, calendars, and appointments. It's finite, divided, quantitative. Like anything quantifiable, we quickly learn how to worry about whether we have enough of it. In our cultural lexicon, is anything to go by. Don't waste time. Time waits for no one. Time is the of the essence. Time is money. We become afraid of losing it, running out of it, and being ravaged by it. This kind of time is demanding, restrictive, and all-consuming. Chronos time, it seems, will eat us alive through our constant effort to track it and control it. However, Kairos time, Kairos time is soul time, the qualitative time of life. It's Greek for opportune. This kind of time is eternal, limitless, and infinite. It's the unbound place where intuition resides, where serendipity unfolds, where joy lives, where healing happens, where creative ideas are born. It's measured in deep exhales, a shared laugh, slow cooking, leisurely walk, a glorious sunset, conversations of intentional listening. It's the moments when we close our eyes and the world feels smaller and more beautiful than ever. Regarded by ancient philosophers as deep time, Kairos is the portal through which we find our place to truly just to be, to fill up not merely our calendars, but ourselves with each other. So I'm going to ask you the question, what makes you lose track of time? What are the things that make you lose track of time? you got to do more of that stuff. Laughing, love to laugh, dancing, kissing, cuddling, whatever it is, makes you lose track of time. Do more of it. Do more Kairos. Do more deep time. That will be an easy way to go from just being sober to being happy and sober. And I hope that helps you to stay where your feet are and live in the moment. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. I want to see something like No, I can't take any laughing. Don't don't let me laugh about anything.